Will you turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 1, Proverbs 1. And the guys have some Bibles. Larry and Len have some Bibles. Aaron does as well. So if you need one, get their attention as they make their way back. And it's Mark 2, Proverbs chapter 1 for you. One of the books that I've been using as I've been studying for this series in the book of Proverbs that we began last week, the title of which is on the screen behind me, Living Wisely in a Foolish World. One of the books I've been using is titled Practicing Proverbs, and in it is recounted an event that happened on April 15, 1912, at 2.20 in the morning. It was the sinking of the Titanic. Most of you know the story of the Titanic. It was considered to be invincible, unsinkable, and yet it ran upon a massive iceberg, and it did indeed sink. But that collision was preceded by no fewer than four warnings of impending danger that came to the Titanic from other ships that were in the midst of the ice. At 11 p.m. on that Sunday night, the wireless operator, a man named John Phillips, received a direct warning from another ship, the California, that was 10 miles away, and it was in the midst of this very large ice. Having received this warning, Phillips sent back the message, Shut up, I'm busy. Forty minutes later, the Titanic collided with an enormous iceberg. Within hours, it rested in a watery grave along with 1,500 passengers and crew. Last week, as we began our look at the book of Proverbs, we were introduced to a titan among wise men. The sage of all sages, the wisest man who ever lived, Solomon. And we saw that Solomon's skill led Israel to unprecedented peace and prosperity. Israel, under his leadership, at least at the beginning, seemed to be unsinkable. And yet, as unbelievable as it seems, the good ship Israel sank. And it sank with none other than Solomon at the helm. And today, we're going to take time to see how that happened as a cautionary tale, as a warning to us, that that can happen to us as well. Let's ask for the Lord's help as we look into his word. Father, again, we thank you for the opportunity to gather and to open the pages of the book that you have given us to understand your purposes for us, to understand something of you, of ourselves, and why you have us here, what you have endeavored to do through Jesus Christ to give us a relationship with you both now and into the future, and how it is that you want your people to live for your glory. And so, Lord, it is to that end that we each week open the pages of Holy Scripture. And we want to see you there, and we want to see ourselves there, and we want to see our frailties, and we want to see our duties, and we want to see Jesus. Because we need him in order to be able to do what you require. And so we ask, Lord, your aid. For apart from it, we cannot understand and we cannot move forward. Apart from you, we can do nothing. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, by way of quick review, Proverbs, you know from last week, is a book about wisdom. 
In fact, in chapter 1, verse 2, we're given the purposes, two of them, for which the book of Proverbs is given. Verse 2 of chapter 1 says, For, one, the attaining of wisdom and discipline, and two, for understanding words of insight. And so we saw last week that the book of Proverbs is designed to help us, that first phrase, attaining wisdom and discipline, to help us know how we're to behave. And then the second phrase, for understanding words of insight, how we are to think. Now it is all about then wisdom. And we saw last week that wisdom is this, it is applied knowledge. It's the skill of using properly what we know. Knowledge is not necessarily wisdom. You can know, you can know plenty, you can have a high IQ, but not use it for its intended purpose. So it's applied knowledge, it's the skill of using properly what we know, or to put it more succinctly, it's skill in everyday life. And verse 1 tells us that this purpose of dispensing wisdom comes to us in the form of Proverbs. And so you see in verse 1 that Solomon spoke these, gave these, these Proverbs. So we saw last week what a proverb is. It's a short statement of wisdom. Now a book like the book of Proverbs does not lend itself to what we normally do when we open God's word together uh, during this hour. What we normally do is we go passage by passage through a book, but Proverbs is not quite arranged that way because Proverbs are these short statements of wisdom. And so you'll have one statement about one subject, and then right after that you'll have another statement about a different subject. And so it is these short, pithy statements designed to help us with the various aspects of living so that we can indeed live wisely. And so we are topically arranging over the next many weeks what the book of Proverbs tells us about a number of very important aspects of life. And in the weeks to come, we'll be looking at those topics. Verse 1 also tells us the Proverbs in this book were written by, or at least the vast majority of them were written by, Solomon. And we talked about his amazing credentials last week. Solomon had all of the advantages afforded to him in order to succeed. Solomon had the promises of God, as we're going to see in a moment. Solomon had the precepts of God. And Solomon was used by God to give no less than 3,000 Proverbs, some of which are contained in the book by that name. He had the promises of God, he had the precepts of God, and he had the Proverbs as well. First want to have you note that Solomon was given the promises of God on his life. God said to Solomon's father, David... He said, when your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then on his deathbed, David passed it on to his son Solomon. The Bible says, when the time drew near for David to die, he gave a charge to Solomon, his son. I am about to go the way of all the earth, he said. So be strong. Show yourself a man and observe what the Lord God requires. He went on, walk in his ways and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and his requirements as written in the law of Moses, so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go, and that the Lord may keep his promise to me. 
And that promise is, if your descendants watch how they live, and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. And then beyond that, later, in a dream... God reiterated these promises to Solomon. And then at the dedication of the temple, the construction of which we know Solomon oversaw, Solomon prayed in 1 Kings chapter 8. And he reiterated, repeated these promises. And then God again, still later, a third time, appeared to Solomon and reaffirmed these promises on his life. And so Solomon had these promises about him and about his life. But he also had been given the precepts of God that God had given to Moses and had codified in the books of the law. And one of those, you know, is Deuteronomy. And it said this, The king must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them, for the Lord has told you. You're not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. (laughs) Now, some of you know about this guy, Solomon, right? Did he do all that stuff? In effect, God was saying, if you want to have a, a pure kingdom, then in the words of one author, you need to avoid misdirected wisdom. Avoid misdirecting, using the wisdom that I've given you toward false ends. You need to avoid misusing wealth. You need to avoid multiplied women. And you need to avoid mixed worship. Misdirected wisdom and misused wealth and multiplied women and mixed worship. You're to avoid those if you're going to be a good king and if you're going to have a pure kingdom. And the Bible tells us, in addition to the promises on his life and the precepts that God gave to Moses, Solomon gave 3,000 proverbs in his lifetime, promises and precepts and proverbs. He had all the advantages in order to succeed, and yet he failed. Now why? How can the wisest man who ever lived, in the words of one book, the ultimate wise guy, how could this guy have failed? Well, Solomon wrote three books in your Bible, and Jewish tradition is probably correct that he wrote the Song of Solomon while he was a young man. And he wrote Proverbs in his middle years, and he wrote Ecclesiastes toward the end of his life. And because Ecclesiastes was written near the end, it contains Solomon's reflections on what went wrong. And it serves then as a cautionary tale for us about what can go wrong. Misdirected wisdom, Solomon tells us about in the book of Ecclesiastes. Notice what he says. He says, I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. What a heavy burden God has laid on men. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Now here in chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes, what Solomon at the end of his life is saying is, here's what I set out to do. I was given this wisdom. I decided to use this wisdom to see everything and to experience everything. Misdirected wisdom. 
And so he tells us about some of the stuff he did then in the book of Ecclesiastes. I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing foolishness, folly. I partied, in effect, he says. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. How did did Solomon fail? Misdirected wisdom. But in the book of Ecclesiastes, he tells us as well, he misused his wealth. And so he says this, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. And so remember in Deuteronomy chapter 17, the king is not to be after wealth, but notice what Solomon is is doing. And he goes on to say, I amassed silver and gold. Note again for who? And the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well, the delights of the heart of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. And all this my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. Misdirected wisdom and misused wealth. But the Bible tells us as well that he engaged with multiplied women also. And so Nehemiah says, Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He he was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. And as a result of his relationship with these pagan women, multiplied women, in violation of God's command, going back to Genesis chapter 2, the Bible tells us that these women led him into mixed worship, pagan worship. And so here's what the Bible tells us. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And unbelievably, notice what's next. Solomon, who oversaw the building of the temple of God on a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab. And for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. You have people who tragically don't learn from the experience of someone like Solomon, which God has recorded for us to learn from. You've heard me say that experience is the best teacher, especially when it's someone else's experience. And that's why God gives us the experiences of these folks so we don't have to do it. And yet how many people 
across America right now are sitting in churches or perhaps here right now are sitting here, but you're saying to yourself, I don't even like this anymore. I come because my wife drags me. I come because my husband drags me. My kids like Sunday school. I don't even like this. I don't even like these people anymore. I don't need this stuff anymore. I would rather worship at the altar. You look at this thing with Solomon and you say, how could he build altars to false gods? Look how many altars to false gods we have every day in our homes, friends. I'd rather be someplace else. And how did I ever get to the point that I engaged in mixed worship? The same way Solomon did. Through misdirected wisdom. Through misused wealth. Multiplied women. And then mixed worship. I say in the outline that's inserted in your program, will you take a look at that? It's our take-home truth. I say God's wisdom brings benefits. But God's wisdom brings benefits that can be foolishly misused. (laughs) I had to toy with that for a while. Because remember what wisdom is. Wisdom is skill in living, skill in everyday life. The proper application of what we know. And if we apply that, if we have that wisdom and we use that wisdom, it will bring benefits. But here's the perverse, distorted thing about it. We can then use the very wisdom that God has given us and misappropriate the ends toward which those benefits are provided. It's precisely what Solomon did. For the longest time for me, I wondered, how does this wise man end up doing such foolish things? He exercised wisdom. The Bible tells us that. That wisdom brought him benefits, and then he misapplied those benefits. And do you know, friends, we can do that very thing? We can use wisdom to acquire benefits. And then having acquired those benefits, misapply foolishly the benefits that come from God. I want us to see that together. In the outline, I mentioned two types, two kinds of wisdom. One that's common. One that can be obtained by anyone. Another that is uncommon, unconventional. It's uncommon and unconventional because it requires a change of the individual in order to see a wider perspective on life. It requires, in fact, a new heart. It requires Jesus Christ. It requires, in the words of Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 7, the fear, the reverence, the awe of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. There's a danger, then, as we look at a book like Proverbs, because if we're not careful, we can see ourselves as wise because, in fact, we are wise in the conventional sense, in the common sense. But we can be very unwise in the unconventional, uncommon sense that says I'm to use the benefits of this wisdom toward uncommon, unconventional ends. And I want us to see that together. And so I say in your outline that all wisdom comes from God. Conventional wisdom comes from God's what we call common grace. Now, you all know what that is, God's common grace. It's the grace of God that is given to all people in common 
all humanity, all those made in his image, it does not save, does not give us a relationship with God, but apart from this common grace, we could not survive in a fallen world. It's common grace in things like understanding that there are cause and effects to the things we do. That's a gift that comes from God. And so if I do crazy things, they're going to have crazy consequences. And some people in God's common grace, even apart from Christ, know that. And so they pursue responsible lives. doesn't mean they're Christians, but they're responsible people. And thankfully, as crazy as our world is, we still have some responsible people. Think about it. If everybody who was not a Christian, which is, by the way, most people, were completely irresponsible, this would be unlivable, would it not? And so God gives this common grace so that people are able to understand laws that he has put into effect in his world. Things like cause and effect. You do this, this will happen. Therefore, avoid that. Thankfully, people do more times than not, and thus life is actually livable. But that conventional wisdom comes from God's common grace. And so you find people who discipline their children. And they don't, they're outside of Christ. It seems that there are fewer and fewer who do this in our culture. But some people, even outside of Christ, discipline their children, teach them responsibility, or they save money, or they work hard, or they try to tell the truth. And as I said, they understand things like cause and effect. And so, if you make this bed, you're going to have to... It's kind of a proverb. You make your bed, you, you lie in it, right? And so people can do good things and do all the time. It's because of God's common grace. It's conventional wisdom. And it all comes from God. Now, I've heard someone say, I think rightly, that common sense is becoming all too uncommon, increasingly in our day. It was George Orwell who said, We have now sunk sunk to such depths that it is the first duty of all intelligent men to restate the obvious. Nonetheless, life is livable because of common grace, common sense, conventional wisdom. You don't have to be a Christian to do certain things well, right? A house can be built well by a non-Christian builder as well as by a Christian builder, right? So... I don't know what, or, or cement can be laid, or a car can be repaired by a non-Christian repairman or a non-Christian pavement person, just like a Christian. I used to see a sign in the Taylor area years ago, and it was advertising an asphalt paving company. And it was so-and-so's Christian asphalt paving. Now, I have to confess to you, I don't know what Christian asphalt looks like. And when it's laid, I think it looks exactly the same if it's laid out by a Christian or by a non-Christian. Now, we chuckle about this, but we, we really do need to get this straight. Because in Christian circles, we get the idea that it only really matters if you stick the word Christian on it. I had the sad occasion yesterday to be in a Christian bookstore, family Christian bookstore. I hate going in there. I hate it. You say, well, it's pretty rough for a pastor to hate to go in a Christian bookstore. All of the trinkets and all of the marketing of Christianity drive me crazy. 
My wife sent me there. I'm not going to forgive her for this. But everything's got to have a Christian name on it. Christian candy. Does Christian candy taste better? I've had some of this. It tastes worse and it costs more. And the fact that it's got a verse on the wrapper does not matter at all to me. Wisdom comes from God. Conventional wisdom comes from God's common grace. But notice, unconventional wisdom comes from God's special grace. You see, people can show wisdom in certain areas. All people can because a good God has given this good gift in common to all people. But it requires God's unconventional wisdom that comes from his special grace given to his people who have eyes to see what he has for us in his world. It comes to us in the light that is the word of God. Not just from horse sense, not just from common sense, but from the uncommon sense that's contained in the pages of the word of God. And so, friends, in our homes, in our individual lives, in our churches, we have got to stop giving the Bible simply nominal authority. You know what I mean when I say nominal, in name only. But rather, it has to have functional authority in our lives and in our churches as well. Because it is only there that the unconventional wisdom that comes from God through His special grace given to His people in His Word is seen. And very often... It turns conventional wisdom on its head. Doesn't God do that in Scripture? Jesus says, He that shall save his life will lose it. Jesus says the worst thing you can do is look out for number one. What does conventional wisdom say? Look out for number one. As the world would look at what Solomon did in his career, the world would say, that guy's got it right. That's the guy I want to be. That's the Donald Trump of his era. I want to be like him. And God says, he who looks out for number one will lose his life. Jesus says the first will be what? Will be last. God says you live for others. You do not live for yourself. God's unconventional wisdom redirects the ends toward which we use the wisdom that God gives, whether of the common variety or the uncommon variety. It's all to be directed toward his ends, toward different ends, to be used for God and not for Solomon and not for Ken and not for you. And so, leaders in a church, the Bible tells us, have to be people of uncommon wisdom. Not just common sense. They have to have that too. But uncommon wisdom. Deacons in a church, 1 Timothy chapter 3, have to be people, have to be men who hold the deep truths of the faith with a sincere heart, the Bible tells us. Because of these two types of wisdom, this conventional wisdom and unconventional wisdom, you can have even professing Christian people who will commonly dispense pearls of, quote, wisdom that they've gleaned via common grace, but hear this, but that they have not redirected to God's ends via his revelation in the Bible, his special grace. And so let me give an example. Someone can use common sense to make money. Right? 
common principles to make money. Spend less than, than you earn. Save. Over time, you'll do okay with that. That's common sense. Conventional wisdom. It's wise. It's good. But does that mean it's going to be directed toward God's ends? Not necessarily, right? It requires unconventional wisdom to do that. Or you might have the person who sees themselves as wise in one area, but because they're focused only on that one area, they're good in money, but their relationships are a mess. Their discretion with their tongue is non-existent. So I've got money, I've got horse sense, I've got common sense, I've got conventional wisdom in this one area. But unconventional wisdom says God's wisdom permeates every area of our lives, as we'll see at the end of our time together. And so, friends, all wisdom comes from God. And there's conventional wisdom that comes from common grace, and there's unconventional wisdom that comes from special grace. And notice I say in your outline that all wisdom, from whether, whether from common grace or special grace, is beneficial. And so there are these benefits that we accrue. Wisdom brings benefits, but it's benefits that we can foolishly use for our own ends. And the truth is, most of us are a mixture of wisdom and foolishness. Wise about money, which brings benefits, but we become foolish and prideful in our accomplishments. And we use it for our own ends, or we use our tongue foolishly to promote ourselves and complain about those who don't see our obvious wisdom. And we sin in that. All the wisdom that God gives, and it all comes from God, is beneficial. And the question then is, how is it going to be used? And that's the third point that I have in your outline. All wisdom of whichever source can be foolishly misused. And I say here, conventional wisdom is always misused. Now, what I mean by that is, if all we have is conventional wisdom, if we do not have the uncommon, unconventional wisdom that only comes through Christ and the new perspective that he gives on the reason for which he gives us these benefits and the ends toward which they're to be directed, if we do not have that, then it will always be, by the unsaved person, misused. Why? Because it will never be directed toward God's ends. Never. unsaved person does not see what he or she amasses or what he or she is able to do as tools to bring glory to God, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, never directed toward God's ends. And further, it's, it's always incomplete in terms of what we're to do with the benefits that God's wisdom has secured. That is, we don't see all of the areas in which we're to exercise the wisdom that God gives outside of Christ and his special grace. And so Jesus told parables about this. Jesus told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. I just want to stop for one moment, and you'll see the first line there. The ground of a certain rich man. Whose ground is that? It's ultimately God's, right? And so that ground produced a rich crop. 
the ground that God gave that belongs to God. It's God's crop. You use it for his ends. But his question is, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, well, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and all my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Now, Jesus goes on. I'm going to show it to you in a moment. But friends, with that right there, am I correct that that is conventional wisdom? This guy's great with money. This guy's no house to make money. What a guy. But he doesn't have the unconventional wisdom of understanding the ends toward which that is to be directed. And because he loves his money, he wants to store it and he wants to hoard it. And Jesus says, you fool. Notice Jesus uses the words of wisdom, foolishness, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And this is how it will be for anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. Conventional wisdom is always misused by the unsaved. Hey, I'm not shocked at what pagans do. That's why they're pagans. really concerns me as a pastor is what Christians do. What really concerns me is what guys like Solomon did. And so I say in your outline, unconventional wisdom is sometimes misused. That is, we know better. We have God's special grace. Presumably we have God's Holy Spirit and we have this wider perspective on His purposes and His ends and still it's sometimes misused by us. How so? It's misdirected. The benefits have accrued from the wisdom that God gives, but now what do I do with those? And we can easily twist and distort the reason for wisdom. Do you hear that? We can twist and distort the reason that God gave us the wisdom to begin with. How perverse is that? The reason for wisdom, that is the purpose for wisdom or the end toward which that wisdom is to be targeted. And that's only given in God's word, not horse sense. Now I'm going to wrap up in just a minute, okay? But stay with me. Friends, it should not be the case that people who have been given the Word of God, placed in our hands, in our laps, on our iPhones, people who have the Word of God preserved for us, should ever say, you know, I don't really know the Bible that well, I just got horse sense. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that over the years. Thankfully not here. But I just operate according to my common sense, my horse sense. That makes you no different than anybody else. God has given us his word, and he has told us the ends toward which we are to use the benefits that his wisdom provides. And so we misdirect it, and then secondly and lastly, we sometimes selectively apply it. And so we have it together in one area, but we have absolutely no wisdom in other areas. 
have it together with money, don't have it together with my tongue, or controlling my anger, or my willingness to defer to others, to agree to disagree in my relationships. What does James say about this? James chapter 3, who is wise? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such so-called wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly. It's unspiritual. It's of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. And then James goes on. I'll give you one last slide to describe the kind of wisdom that God gives that is not misdirected and is not selectively applied. Here's what he says. The wisdom that comes from heaven is pure. And it loves peace. And it's considerate. And it's the S word. It's submissive. And it's full of mercy and good fruit. And it's impartial. And it's sincere. What a beautiful thing. What a beautiful description. Now, friends, most of us see in that list stuff that doesn't apply to us. Don't we? And so we're going to bow before the Lord. And we're going to say, Lord, thank you for showing us that. Thank you for showing me. Thank you for showing us that we're not as wise as we thought we were. We don't have it together as well as we thought we did. Just because I have it together in one area doesn't mean I have it together in these other areas. Thank you for convicting me to bring me back to the right path. Don't get mad about it. Get right with God. This is why the Bible says, Let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he what? Lest he fall. Why? Because I can have it together, you can have it together in certain areas, and then I get into a different situation, and it exposes an area of my heart that I didn't even know was there. And the Word of God exposes our hearts. I can tell you it's exposed my heart, just in studying and presenting this. So we're going to bow before the Lord, and we are going to confess, and we are going to ask the Lord to forgive us, and He is faithful and just to do that very thing. Friends, the only way you can have this unconventional wisdom, not just horse sense, not just conventional wisdom, the only way you can have this unconventional wisdom that James speaks of in James chapter 3 is by having a relationship with the God who gives it. And how do I acquire that relationship? Be willing to admit who you are. You're a sinner. Understand who Jesus is. God the Son has come to do for you what you could not do for yourself. He died on the cross for your sin. Past, present, and future sin. You repent. You say, Lord, I'm not going to go my way any longer. I'm not going to operate just on my horse sense. I'm going to follow you and your unconventional sense. In your word, I'm going to follow your path. That's what repent means. I'm going to go your way, not mine. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. When we bow, you pray to him. And you say in your own words to him that you're a sinner. You believe he died for your sin. You ask him to forgive you. And you tell him that you're committed to following him. He'll save you and change you from the inside out. Let's bow before our God. Father, we thank you for this opportunity once again to look into your word and to be chided there, to be convicted there. 
But Lord, it is a good gift from you, our good God, to show me areas of my heart and areas of my life that I don't expose myself and I don't have occasion, occasion to have exposed except when looking into the mirror of Scripture. So thank you, Lord, for showing me that I haven't arrived. Thank you for showing us that even though we are competent and wise in some areas, we may be very foolish in others. And may that, Lord, engender a humility about us then. A humility as we view ourselves, a humility as we engage with others. And may it engender in us as well a thankfulness to a gracious God who doesn't leave us where we are but shows us where we need to go and gives us the Word of God to guide us, gives us the Spirit of God to to motivate us, gives us the people of God to keep us accountable to that. Thank you for these good gifts. And I pray that right now that there are some who came into this room and who did not know you, did not have a relationship with you through Jesus Christ and who are right now being changed because of your mercy and grace and because of what Jesus Christ has done for them. We'll give you the glory for all that you accomplish, both in these new births that are occurring and in the lives of those who are seeking to walk with you and glorify you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.